I think it's important for us to never assume that we have all the answers. Yes, I know a lot about security, but I would never consider myself as being the be all and the end all. You don't understand problems until and unless you take the time to talk to people and listen to what the issues are. Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy and here in Michigan, but only 50% will make it five years in business. On Mitten Money, host William Zank will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners with the tough questions that will help them succeed. How do I expand my business? What options do I have for retirement? How do I move forward? Having worked with small business owners throughout his entire career and with excellent attention to detail and strong analytical skills, William Zank of TriStar Trust will unearth answers to these questions and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Mint Money. So a confession to share, the guest who we have on today has had an amazing impact in my life. Back in 2013, I was starting to learn more about the business world and wanted to learn more about daily habits. From here, I saw that a lot of successful people that I knew would start their day bright and early, which has led me to around the same time, I found a video that I watched which featured the guest today that went through a day in his own life. Watching the video inspired me to also start this daily habit. And even nine years later, I still wake up early every day. So enough about myself. Today's special guest is Kevin Kendrick, who last worked as the Corporate Vice President of Global Security with Dow Corning, and before that had a 25-year career with the FBI. During his career, he spent many years building and developing security processes and policies, safeguarding and analyzing physical and cybersecurity threats, and helping out his community with several different philanthropic endeavors. And so welcome, Kevin, to Mint Money. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Well, I look forward to this. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and dive right in. So continuing on with what I said in the introduction, at what point did you develop this daily habit for waking up early? And is it something that you've been doing across your whole career? I won't say my whole career, but it did start when I was in the FBI for sure. And that's because our days are so, so different. Two days can be wildly, wildly different. So you can't really plan your days and schedule regular workouts. I found that getting up early and getting that workout in early in the day, getting it out of the way was about the only time I could actually rely upon to get it done. So when I came to Dow Corning, I just continued doing it. I get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock and get that workout in. And it gave me enough time when I was done to be able to speak to our offices across the seas. In Asia, people were still there. I could talk to them. And in Europe, I could talk to them before they went home. So if something had broken overnight, it gave me an opportunity to talk with a live body. So it was a win-win. Of course, from the personal side, but then also from the business side as well. And so it kind of works into kind of my next question. So what made you initially interested in a career in law enforcement? And then also, what have been some of the big changes that you've seen over the course of your own career? Uh, Great question. It's hard for me to say. I haven't always wanted to be in law enforcement. I remember as a child wanting to be a scientist. That was the first thing. And specifically a paleontologist. I just love looking at dead animals. I thought that was really cool. So (laughs) something happened to me in middle school, however. I started to see and understand what bullying looked like. And about that time, I really started developing kind of strong feelings about bullies. And I mean, I could defend myself, but I, I really took exception to seeing people taken advantage of. And as a result of that, when I started my work career at Wayne State University, 
My first real job there was in the bookstore, but after that, I transferred to their their public safety department, and I got to work there for a year and went on to become a Detroit police officer and then the FBI. So it started at an early age in middle school. What changes have you seen over the course of your career? And so starting from at being a police officer with the city of Detroit to then kind of tailing off the career at Dow Corning, have you noticed a lot of changes from as it pertains to maybe during the start of your career, crimes were committed in one form or fashion, and then over time that may have unfortunately evolved into other forms or fashions you've seen being more common? As I grew up in the FBI, so to speak, we did see kind of an evolution, of course, from physical crimes, crimes, robberies, bank robberies, kidnappings, and things of that nature. You started seeing more cyber type crimes. Of course, 9-11 changed everything from the Bureau's perspective. And I guess that's the biggest change. I would say that after 9-11, Police departments, the FBI, all of law enforcement pretty much acted in a secular nature. There was not a lot of information sharing, and 9-11 changed all of that. We had task forces prior to that time, but we weren't really exchanging information and sharing information, more importantly, on a daily basis. 9-11 changed all that, got law enforcement on a federal, state, and local level to start working together in a much more cohesive fashion. And that's been good for all of us, frankly. Oh, sure. I can definitely see that. And so after this 25-year career in the FBI, you made the jump to then working in the private sector to being a corporate vice president of global security for Dow Corning. And so how was that transition for you from working in a government role to then working for a private company? And then also, how was the transition for you for yourself for moving across the country for this opportunity? Because I believe in the pre-call, you'd mentioned that you were working with your last post with the FBI in North Carolina, and then all of a sudden you're moving from a nice climate all year round to <laughs> back to Michigan, back to snow. Right. And so how, how was that transition for you? That one wasn't bad because Michigan is home for my wife and myself. So moving back to Michigan wasn't that difficult. We're accustomed to the snow. We don't like it. We prefer the weather here, which explains why we're back here after retiring from Dow Corning. But the first part of your question was making that transition from the government to the private sector. And that's a great question because I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's not a transition that a lot of people in law enforcement can make smoothly. And I say that because the interests aren't necessarily aligned. When you're in law enforcement, your goal is to arrest and convict. That's pretty much it. That's not necessarily the goal on the private side, on the corporate side. Many times because of shareholders, stockholders, companies just don't want that kind of exposure. So they're looking for the problem to go away more than looking for necessarily some kind of arrest and conviction solution. So understanding that is difficult. So it's a big change. And a lot of, I know a lot of guys who were not able to make that transition and were just frustrated because, you know, you grew up with this mindset that if you do something wrong, you need to pay a consequence for it. Well, true, but we have to be cognizant of what those consequences look like. When you initially started at Dow Corning in 2006, what were some of the first steps that you took to analyze the current setup of these security systems, both from a physical point of view, but then also from a cyber point of view? And then how did your experience in the FBI also assist in this? You know, Did it help out having that background knowledge and being able to leverage the resources that you learned over the course of your career? Sure. That's a great question. I was really fortunate 
And when I first started working at Dow Corning, fortunate in the sense that there was an individual there, and I don't know if you remember him, Mike Kazak, great guy. Mike was in charge of physical security for Dow Corning and had been in that position for a number of years. So from a physical security perspective, Dow Corning was in really good shape. I was hired specifically because even though we were doing things great on the physical security side, we weren't doing things that well in protecting our sensitive or classified information, our intellectual property. And Dow Corning at that time had quite a bit of intellectual property. So I'll have to tell you this. One of the first things I did when I started at Dow Corning was trying to build kind of a, a platform of presentations that I could give to different audiences. And I came in with the assumption that Dow Corning as a chemical company would be primarily concerned, of course, about intellectual property protection. But I also came in with the idea that we would be concerned about terrorism. And as I would give my presentations on terrorism and how employees could identify potential terrorists and things of that nature, I was informed pretty early on that we really aren't that concerned about terrorism. Fortunately, I had a few people, especially not so much here in the States, but overseas in Asia, in Europe, who said terrorism, yes, it's a risk, but it's not something that we spend our nights awake with. And they were much more concerned about cyber crimes and things of that nature. So that was a lesson learned for me. And I think that that was something that benefited me because I was able to start emphasizing some of those things that they really wanted to hear about and buy into. Everyone understands that intellectual property protection is tied to your economic viability. And the more we can do to protect that intellectual property, the better off it is for all of us. You brought up a great point that I kind of want to double click on if you don't mind. And so looking into the point that you made about your giving these presentations, your you know, for lack of better words, you're invested within, to your knowledge, what you would have believed to be a top threat for this company. But then at a particular point, someone took you aside and said, you know, this probably isn't, you know, the top threat for us. And while it is a threat, we think that there could be some other bigger threats out there. And so in your opinion, how did you then take a step back and pivot to go look at what were some of those other bigger threats? Because for a lot of people, if they're invested within what they personally believe in, it would be tough for a lot of people to kind of check their ego out the door, make an emotionalist decision to kind of pivot and then look in this new strategic direction. It's a, it's a very hard thing for a lot of people to make that pivot. And so what were some of the things or tools that you kind of looked at yourself and be able to go make that pivot? And that is such a great point. Well, I appreciate you asking that question because I think it is important. I think it's important for us to never assume that we have all the answers. Yes, I know a lot about security, but I would never consider myself as being the be-all and the end-all. You don't understand problems until and unless you take the time to talk to people and listen to what the issues are. I had one situation in Mexico City, for instance, where we had a small sales office of about 25 people. They were in the process of relocating to a different area. And they had enough parking spaces in the new area on the inside of the building for about 20 of the employees, 20 of the 25. And one employee just kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, it would be nice if we could get parking for everybody on the inside. And I said, I'm thinking to myself, of course, it would be nice if we had, but, you know, obviously we're, we can't do that. 
Then he explained to me why he wanted to park on the inside. At that time in Mexico City, if you parked your car on the street, you were liable to pay a street tax. There were actually roving gangs that would go around and say, if you don't pay us to watch your car, something bad will happen to it. Well, I thought, wow, that's great information. I would never have known that. But I took it back to the vice president of Dow Corning, who had responsibility for that particular office, and explained the situation to him. And he said, oh, my goodness, I never knew that. So immediately they made those parking. They secured five more parking spaces. Problem solved. But you really have to listen to people. I think that's important when you're in any leadership position. You have to listen to what people are telling you because you don't have all the answers. That's a great story. I appreciate you mentioning that. And so in the prior answer that you were kind of when we were going back and forth, you had mentioned that cybercrime has been on the rise over the past few years. And so is this something that we should expect should continue to rise in the future? Yeah, that's another great question. And of course, cyber crimes are definitely on the rise. They are something that I saw grow exponentially while I was at Dow Corning. And, you know, they kind of started off as just more along the lines of extortions and things like that. Then they became a little bit more sophisticated. And we saw cyber tools being used to commit a variety, such as stealing intellectual property through social engineering. And now, of course, we're seeing attacks on cloud systems and things of that nature. Of course, the extortions continue. And I think the reason for that is, of course, you can do it with a relative degree of anonymity. And the problem is that unless we, we being the United States, have some kind of relationship with the country that the perpetrators live in, if we don't have an extradition treaty with them, there's literally nothing that we can do to go after the people that commit those crimes. And these guys are smart enough to understand that I may try a scam a hundred times. If I get one or two people to listen to what I'm trying to do, it's beneficial for them. So when you're talking about cybercrime, do you think it's more important for an organization to have better technology in place or better processes and procedures? Because for some people, I could imagine, you know, not being an expert myself in cybersecurity, that if you were to invest in the most expensive, most sophisticated piece of software, that should eliminate all problems out there. And as long as you have an okay policies and procedures in place, that should help prevent the problem from arising. And so in your opinion, if you were to go kind of pick A or B, what do you think would be more effective for a small business to have? I think for a small business, it's not necessarily going to be the technology that keeps you ahead of the game. The technology advances generally because of some breach that has already occurred. So the technology is really kind of a lagging response to something that has has happened. I think if I had to, obviously both things are important when you're talking about protecting your your intellectual property or, or just protecting your people, but it takes a constant effort on the part of companies to stay abreast of trends and what's going on. It takes frequent interaction with law enforcement, participating in, in training seminars, and just making sure you reinforce to people the importance of due diligence as it relates to emails that they received so much. And so many of the crimes that we're seeing now are because of people who clicked on something that contained a malicious 
property or a malicious link to something else. And it's just making sure that you, unless you really, really know where this email is coming from, and that can be hard to determine, you've just got to exercise a lot of due diligence. Even to the point of social engineering on the cyber side is, can be very sophisticated. When I was at Dow Corning, we received an email once that appeared to have come from the CEO, and it was only sent to five people. And one person actually clicked on it, and it introduced some harmful virus into our system. It was immediately caught and trapped, so that wasn't the problem. But the approach that the people use by sending it, we call that low and slow. They didn't send a mass email to people. They sent it to five people and they sent it at different times. Well, that's pretty sophisticated social engineering when you're looking at a company the size of Dow Corning, but they knew exactly what they were doing. So you just have to be very careful. Your software has to be up to date. You may want to consider periodic audits of your your equipment to make sure that they're clean and that there's no virus wear in there. But I think the training is definitely the most part, the most important part. And so in the example that you had mentioned, what are some good protocols for companies to try and limit the downtime that they may face, you know, whether that is a system-wide, you know, lock that they may have, or they found out that a breach happened yesterday? What are some other good protocols in place to have the capabilities and knowledge to be able to go shut that down just in the example that you mentioned or like the example that you mentioned? Sure. I think the biggest thing, because it, it depends, if you can isolate something right away, that's great. But I think the biggest thing that a company can do is to make sure that they have some redundancy, that you have to have your system backed up in another environment that's not connected to your current network. And you need to be able to have access to that in the event that you do suffer a severe compromise. That way you can shut down that system, get it cleaned, get it inspected, get it investigated if necessary by law enforcement, but keep your operations up and running on the backup that you should have in place. I think there's some other things that small companies can do. If you suspect that you've been hacked, you need to make sure that you disconnect from the internet right away. That should be point number one. Remote access for people who are not necessarily in the office needs to be disabled. Until you can get that backup system online, you really have to make sure you've cut off any possible other points of injury from the people that that broke into your system in the first place. Oh, excellent advice. I really appreciate mentioning that, especially from, it could just be very simple advice from just turning off the internet, but then at that point, you're kind of limiting the effect that that potential attack could have on you. So that's That's fantastic advice. And so while many people are, I'm sure, well aware at cybersecurity with, unfortunately, the cyber attacks that have happened, you know, across the nation for X, Y, and Z events, I imagine that something that doesn't get a lot of attention, but could still get, you know, and cause a lot of harm to a company are the physical securities of a company's assets. And so what are some of the most common threats that most people wouldn't know about? And that's a great question. One of the areas that I worked in when I was in the FBI was on the white collar side. And we saw so much, most of the problems in the white collar side, yes, there are situations where you have external parties trying to steal your assets, but the most significant threats always seem to come from the inside. And I think that's the one thing that companies don't necessarily guard against very well. We assume that because someone has been at a particular place for a long time that there's automatic loyalty to the company. 
And you can't necessarily make that assumption, especially if you have a situation with an employee who feels as if he or she has perhaps gotten a poor job appraisal, a job performance rating, maybe didn't get a promotion or something along those lines. That's when when the anger starts to build and you have to be very, very sensitive to that. And I don't want to say be overly suspicious of your employees, but don't go into it thinking that because someone has worked there for 20 years, that that loyalty will always be there. Insider threat is real. That's a great point. And I'm assuming that that same threat could also happen. You know, while we talked about physical security, I'm sure that that same thing could probably happen for cyber as well. Absolutely. Yes, without question. The other thing I wanted to mention too, when we're talking about physical security is the the specter of workplace violence. It's something that we're seeing a lot of every single day. And unfortunately, we don't do a very good job of tracking, monitoring those situations that can result in workplace violence. I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations where we had an employee go violent. When you're talking to people, you you hear comments like, oh, you know, I knew he was going to do something crazy one day. <laughs> and it's like, hmm, really? Well, did you let anybody know that? Did human resources know about that? So companies have a duty to care for their employees. And it's really, really, really important that we do, I think, across the country and all of our industries a better job of monitoring those situations where you have people who, as it's called in the industry, being grievance collectors, and they build up these grievances time after time. And then one day, they just kind of go off. And that's when tragedy happens. Of course, that can definitely be a little scary. And so switching topics now from talking about that to talking a little bit about the philanthropic service you've done kind of in the Great Lakes Bay region. And so I saw that you're related to many organizations, you know, including Midland Center for the Arts, Midland Area Community Foundation, Midland Noon Rotary Club, amongst many other organizations. And so what was your inspiration to joining these different groups and helping out these different organizations? Uh, You know, for yourself, if you're coming new to an area, you wouldn't necessarily have to get involved in the community, but it looks like you dove headfirst. You were involved in so many different things when your time, when you're still here in the Great Lakes Bay region. So do you mind chatting a little bit about that? Not at all. Actually, that was one of the most enjoyable parts of the job. I loved working at Dow Corning because yes, I did get involved in a lot, but Dow Corning told me on day one that that was kind of their expectation of me to get involved and of all their executives, frankly, did a wonderful job of supporting employee involvement in philanthropic activities. And I appreciated that. It was something I really didn't get a chance to do in the FBI. Your days are kind of defined for you. So you don't really have an opportunity to join boards and things of that nature. And retiring from there and coming to work for Dow Corning, where the expectation is that you will get involved in the community was a breath of fresh air. So yeah, I dove in, but I felt like I was kind of making up for lost time. And it was absolutely enjoyable. Now, I know that for both of us, a coworker of mine, Kristen Werfel, worked at the Millen Center for the Arts. And so this answer might be a little biased, but did you have one organization that you joined that you were surprised you enjoyed more than the others? Well, certainly the theater was something I never thought I would enjoy because I never stepped foot on a stage until I participated in my first play at the Center for the Arts. So that was nerve wracking, but it was fun. I think the one group that I participated in that I love the most would have to be Rotary. 
I continue in Rotary today, but it's because Rotary reached out to so many different areas. We were involved in so many different projects, whether it was helping the Salvation Army or providing diapers for the Diaper Alliance or just helping out social services, doing some feeding programs, working with the schools. There was just a whole variety of of different issues and areas that we worked in as Rotarians. Midland is so fortunate to have not just two Rotary clubs, but a Kiwanis club, Alliance club. They just, service is kind of a way of life in Midland. And it was just fun to be able to participate with people like that, with like-minded people. Oh, just a wonderful answer. Now time for our signature question. So at TriStar, while as a firm, we provide comprehensive wealth management services to our clients, at the center of all this are relationships. Building genuine relationships is something that we talk about every day. And I'm sure that you find relationships as a key part of being a part of the community that I just mentioned, but then also throughout your whole career. And so can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe share any examples that you've experienced firsthand with regard to the importance of building relationships within your own career, and then also within the service that you do too? Well, yeah. And that's a great question because I think that that's kind of at the heart of everything we do relationships matter. I mean, they truly matter. The Chinese have a word for it. And I learned this while I was at Dow Corning, but it's called Guanji. Everything is about relationships. And unless and until you have a relationship with people, it's really difficult to get the things done that you need to get done. You have to have trust in the party that you're dealing with. You have to talk. You have to have the ability to listen to people. It's so important with everything that we do, whether it's at work, at home, or volunteering. Sure. And that's just a a beautiful answer. And so I I appreciate mentioning on all those different points. And so for those people who want to learn more about yourself, what are some good resources for the listeners, you know, to go find more about Kevin? Well, you may want to check me out on Facebook. (laughs) And then you may want to reconsider whether you want to really get to know me or not. (laughs) But no, you know, I think you can probably Google. I haven't Googled myself lately, but if you Google, Google me, I'm sure you'll be able to find some things. Well, thank you. And thank you again for listening to another episode of Mint Money. Please don't forget to follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Will. You've been listening to Mitten Money sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at tristartrust.com. <laughs>